turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Or punch in your Bibles. I need to remember a lot of you have it on your smartphone. You know, you don't, you don't turn anymore. I still think somebody needs to come out with an app that when you punch, we hear pages turn. You know? Just, we, we miss that sound of everybody turning at the same time. 2 Samuel 13 is one of those passages of Scripture I never knew I would um, end up reading to my kids when I committed myself to, to read through the Bible with my kids. Uh, if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that, to, to have family devotions where you read all the way through Scripture. Uh, there's a lot of resources where you can do that. The Child Story Bible is great to start with. It goes all the way through in story format. But then to eventually get to Scripture, and as you read through, you come across passages of Scripture that you're thinking as a dad, I would have never gone here. I would have never come here because these, these are tough subjects. And yet, by ignoring the subjects, our kids come up with the idea that we're indifferent towards them, that they're not important, that they don't really matter since we skip over them to go to easier subjects. The subject of 2 Samuel 13 is the subject of uh, rape, abuse, sexual abuse. And we live in a world where you can't turn on the news any given night when there's not a story, it seems, about sexual abuse. We, you look at a chapter like this and you say, man, this is tough. And yet at the same time, we can't ignore this. We can't be indifferent to it. It's happening all around us all the time. Our kids aren't embarrassed about it. They need direction. The Word of God is here. God didn't make a mistake when he, he gave us a whole chapter devoted to rape and sexual abuse. And it really comes after previous chapters where that's going on as well. So, you know, it's tough to deal with, but we, we need to deal with it. And you need to uh, be equipped by it. And I hope uh, you'll get that equipping from God and His Spirit this morning. Uh, this week, we had Bill Cosby, 80 years old, convicted of sexually abusing people. This is not foreign to us. How many of you invited Bill Cosby into your home, watched him entertain you, and the whole time you're watching his entertainment? He has a lifestyle of sexual abuse. He's the abuser. This is something we bring into our home. One of Satan's traps is to, because we, we so value comedy and entertainment and self-help that we constantly invite folks in like Bill Cosby or Helen DeGeneres or Oprah Winfrey, people who have a lifestyle of sexual corruption. And we bring it into our homes and we're entertained with these leaders and we present this and we say, we don't have a problem. And we say, that's all out there and it's not in here. There's a lot of stuff we have to deal with and we can't ignore it. Uh, this past week, we had the police come to our church and 
asked for some of our security camera footage to investigate an alleged sexual abuse on our campus. To my knowledge, they haven't found anything. But that doesn't mean it's not here. And it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. As your pastor, I've gotten a number of phone calls, not a lot, a few phone calls where somebody calls me up and says, hey, I noticed so-and-so at your church. I said, yes, they're here. Well, do you know that they are on the South Carolina Registry for Sexual Offenders? And I said, well, I do now. And what are you going to do about it? So I said, well, I'll talk to them and we'll explore their situation, what they've been found guilty of and convicted of, and I'll talk to them about how we can be safe in this environment, and we have policies in place for all of that, and I'll talk to them about what they can and cannot do here, and I'll seek to disciple them and take them just like everybody else from this place to the next. And I also get phone calls, not only of, the, I've got, I got a phone call, it said, do you know so-and-so is in your church, and they have AIDS, and they got AIDS because they're homosexual. I said, well, I do now. And I have that same situation going to that person and explaining to them they can't be on the communion service, they can't be in nurseries. They, you go through all the ramifications of what they can and cannot do because now they are convicted. But then also to encourage them that I want to love you and I, I want you to be loved and I want you to experience the, the wholeness that can be yours in Christ. I'm constantly reminded of Christ going to talk to this woman at the well who she had to sneak out to the well because she was a sexual abuser. She had sexual corruption all over her. And she had to sneak out there when nobody else was there and Jesus goes and wants to talk with her. And wants to invite her to worship. By the time the adulteress caught in the act, probably naked before him, people have, want to have a stone-throwing party. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you're without sin, pick up, go ahead and throw your stones. But then he wants to send this lady away and say, your sins are forgiven. And I want, I want to make you whole and right. I don't want us to approach the whole subject of of sexual abuse and think that we are not in this game and this doesn't matter. I get, I get the phone calls. Do you know so-and-so is having an affair? They're an adulterer. They're an adulteress. They're a homosexual. We've had lesbians and homosexuals sing on our stage. This is here in this church, in this community, it's on our televisions, it's on our smartphones, and we can't escape it. It's all around us. And to ignore it and to be indifferent to it, you're ignoring the Word of God, but you're also not equipped to deal with the life God wants us to be equipped with. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Definition, or not a definition, a description of the church in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, 
It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And it gives us this description of unrighteous people. It says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now underline and circle the next five words. Such were some of you. That's us. We are saved from something. We're saved from sin. In this room, there are former fornicators. Hopefully, there's, there's both. There's those that were, those that are, and those we're going to get out of it. The fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Such were some of you, but you washed. You were sanctified. You were cleansed by Christ. This is a hospital for sinners. Yes, we're also a, 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 a team of warriors for Christ. But I don't want anybody to leave this place through a description and say, well, I'm too bad. This is who we are. And we need the mercy and grace of Christ. We need to deal with tough subjects and be equipped to go forth washed and cleansed in Christ. Well, let's get to 2 Samuel 13. Begin to see this difficult subject of rape and abuse, knowing God's word directs us. We need to be warned. As a church, we need to be warned. There are no safe places, not even your home, because there's no place where there's not a sinner. And sinners are messy and abusive, and we need to be vigilant in seeking to deal with our own sin and respond to the sins of others. Second Samuel 13, the passage is so long, my time is so limited, I won't read it all, but I'm going to go through the whole chapter, just not going to read it all to you. 2 Samuel 13, Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Am Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. By virgin here it means she was of age to be married. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeach, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Well, let's stop there for a minute. You're being introduced to the fact that we've got this king's son named Amnon. He says he loves Tamar, king's sister. They have different mothers, same dad. And he's basically saying, it's killing me that I haven't been able to have sex with her. 
Jonadab comes on the scene and says, I can work that out for you. And he comes up with a plan for Amnon to rape Tamar. That's the story that we get into. Now, before you get into it, don't miss the bigger picture. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, now it was after this. After what? Don't miss the bigger picture. Go back into chapter 12. After what? After God told David this about David's sin. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, this is the conclusion of David's sin. The sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Now, the bigger picture. Chapter 11, David commits adultery. David rapes Bathsheba. He commits murder. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. God says, you're trying to hide it. I'm coming to play. And God shows up, convicts David of his sins, and one of the consequences of his sin is that this will affect your household. You don't sin as the dad and it not affect your household. So as a result of your sin of rape, adultery, abuse, lying, deception. That's going to be in your family. And so when we get to the story and we hear that one of David's sons, that's why it's very clear to tell us these things, David's son, Amnon, wants to rape one of David's daughters, Tamar. It's like, well, God said this was coming. And that's not the only thing coming. There's going to be more of it. And it's going to be in broad daylight. And there's also going to be murder involved. We don't like to talk about sins of the fathers, do we? Remember last week I told you the story of a blind man? I wanted you to remember that the, the man most blind in the story was not the man who could not see but the man who would not see. There's no one as blind as a man who will not see. And over and over again, I find in counseling, people who've gone through sexual abuse, and when I throw it back at the parents, and what's going on with the parents? And I find a lifestyle of adultery or unfaithfulness, rape, and abuse in the parents. Or I find addiction to pornography and shows that are encouraging sexual abuse. And I'm thinking, and you don't see the core, you don't see the connection? And most of the time people say, I don't even want to go there. That's unfair. Well, why? There are consequences to what we think to what we do, to what we watch, to where we live, what, we, what we're connected to. 
and don't think as parents we can live our lives and our kids won't be affected. That it won't matter. Don't miss the bigger picture. So many times we want to push it aside. And we don't want to think about our involvement in the lives of people who are living with us and under us for multiple generations sometimes. And that's clearly presented here in 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13. What happens? Amnon rapes Tamar. Tamar gets murdered by Absalom, another son of David. Absalom rapes David's wives and concubines a few chapters on in. And then Joab is raised up and kills Absalom. So Absalom, so we, 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 we get rape, abuse, lying, deception, murder, murder, murder. And David is strangely silent in 2 Samuel 13. And then by the time Absalom is murdered, he's weeping. He begins to see, I think, some of the consequence of his sin. So let's, let's, let's don't miss David's sin as central. We got to deal with this. And if we're going to deal with it, five lessons I want to give you this morning. Let's go through the chapter as quickly as I can. First lesson I think that is so strong in this text, the first 20 verses, is the lesson of repugnancy. We've got to learn to loathe sin. When I told you that Tamar was raped by Amnon, is there a, something in your heart that begins to grieve? Like, oh no, that's repugnant. That's terrible. I hate it. God wants us to get there. We've been raising generation after generation who's not there. How many games are on your smartphone that doesn't respect the sacred bodies that God has given us to steward. We, we kill people for no reason on our games, and we even see rape and abuse on these games and shows, and we treat it as though, nah, no big deal, that's just what we do. And we throw it off as though it's a thing to play with. And it's not. We need strongly to develop. We see something like that and we need to grieve. We need to moan. We need to cry out. No, that's, we don't need to do it that way. There needs to be that. Here, here's, here's some of the screams of Tamar. Verse 12. She answered him. So this is Amnon coming. I need you to lie down with me. Verse 12. She answered him. No, my brother. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done. Do not do this disgraceful thing. You see her understanding. This is disgraceful. It's a violation. 
It's contrary to the laws, our, the standards of our community. No! Get that understanding of the ugliness of this act. Verse 13, as for me, where can I get rid of my reproach? If, if we go here to a place of rape and sexual abuse, where do you lose that? You're on the registry for the rest of your life. How do we get over that? This one act, this five or ten minutes, changes life forever. And she understands. Also, verse 13, as for you, you will be like one of the fools. It's foolish, perverted in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. In other words, there's other ways to do this. We don't have to be in this repugnant area. But it needs to be there. We need to have those kind of feelings if that's where it is. Verse 16, she said to him, no. The, verse 16, he's already raped her. Verse 15, he hates her now and wants to put her away. Verse 16, she said to him, no. You raped me and now you want to kick me out? That would be, that wrong, this wrong is sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Verse 17, then he called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out. Literally in the Hebrew, Woman's not in the text. So Amnon literally says, throw this out. Treating this woman that he just raped as though she, she is in personal trash. Doesn't even want to call her a woman anymore. Does that grieve you? If not, Pray, repent, number one. Repent, if you are not grieved by this. Repent, say, God, there is obviously something wrong with my heart. I repent. Forgive me for not hating sin more. This should make me feel bad. And if it doesn't make me feel bad, I repent. And say, God, change my heart. Give me a stronger more repugnant hatred for such abuse. It's wrong. It's a violation of all that God has created for us. We don't treat one another as impersonal trash. Uh, Absalom enters the room, verse 20. He sees what's happened, what's gone on, and he takes care of his sister. But her life has changed forever. I'm not going to take the time, a whole nother sermon, to think through Tamar, verses 5 through 11, she's trapped. Verses 14 and 16, she's ignored. Verse 14, she's raped. Verse 15, she's despised. Verse 17, she's banished. Verses 18 through 20, she's ruined for the rest of her life. That's the consequence of sin. What does sin do? to you you're trapped verse 5 through 11 you're ignored verse 14 and 16 you're raped verse 14 you're fit despised you're 15 you're banished verse 17 you're ruined you think through the consequences of this 10 minute sexual abuse let us repent ever since 
1973 in this land, the Supreme Court of America has been teaching the teachers and teaching the leaders and teaching parents to despise the bodies God has created us to steward. When they said abortion is legal, they began a movement to teach us we can do whatever we want with our bodies, with our bodies, instead of seeing that our bodies are created in the image of God and whatever you do to that which is created in the image of God is a violation of the Creator. It's offensive to the Creator. And the Creator is not going to tolerate that. But we have been teaching that. And we've raised generation after generation to now where are we? We're to a place where bodies are abused and despised every day in public. And we think it's common, so commonplace that we, we've, our conscience is so seared, many of us don't grieve anymore. When we, we hear about murder and rape and abuse, tears are not being shed. We need to repent of that. We need to turn from that. And we need at times, even in our homes, to say, could you please turn that off? And they say, why? Because it so grieves me. It's, it's just disgusting. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just, I can't live with that in front of me. Because it breaks my heart so. That's where we need to get. We need more people screaming, No. That's a violation. That's offensive. This body is made in God's image and God created me to steward it. I have to give an account for how I treat my body and your body. And I look forward to the resurrection of the body. God values the body. He says, pay attention here. There are violations that we commit that need to be stopped any repent of any non-cherishing action towards the wonderful bodies God has created second we need to be repugnant we need to have reason what led Amnon to the Amnon to these horrific actions it was a lack of reason did did you catch it in verses one through five there that uh, he says, I love Tamar. Did he really love Tamar? Especially teenagers, especially when you're uh, in this rhetorical age of classical studies. You're, you're at that age of saying this needs to be logical. It needs to be rational. It needs to be reasonable. What's your definition for what's reasonable? And as you think through that, it's reasonable if it's consistent with the standard, and the standard is the Word of God. So it makes sense if it's consistent with God's Word, His revelation, His design for us. Is what Amnon wanting to do with Tamar, is that reasonable? He says, I love her. Incest is contrary to the law of God. 
clear as day. He wants to have sex with his sister? Good grief. That's not reasonable. That doesn't make sense. But I love her. No, you don't. You do not love her. This is called lust. Anytime you want to use your affections outside the law of God, it's lust. It's not love. Because love is always reasonable. God is love. God's rational. So it's not reasonable. And you can evaluate someone's behavior towards you by whether or not it's consistent with the law of God. Amnon's behavior was clearly not consistent with the law of God. It was not reasonable. We need to get back to a consistent understanding, application of the word of God. Get out of fantasy land. Get back to the truth. Fantasies are destroying others. It's not reasonable. It certainly destroyed Tamar and many others. Well, repugnancy, reason. Number three, reliability. Who's reliable in this story? It's interesting, Jonadab is presented as though he is really a cool cat. The description we have of him, verse 3, Jonadab was a very shrewd man. We like people like that. They're cool. A shrewd person is a person who sees, you need to go over here, I can, I can, get, I can get you from here to there. That's what Jonadab did. He says, you, you want to have sex with that one? I can make that happen. He's, he's a schemer. And he can make it happen. When you get to the end of the story, uh, over in, uh, and I'm going to have to skip, skip some of that, uh, Absalom, remember Absalom take, is taking care of Tamar, so I'm just giving you the summary. And Absalom is Tamar's sister, taking care, but he's, he's, he's mad. And so he says, I'm going to get Amnon back. He waits two years. He has a sheep shearing party. When they sheared their sheep, it's a great time to celebrate all the bounty God's given you. So he's having this sheep shearing party, and he invites Amnon to it, the rapist. And he, he waits Till he's had his drinks at happy hour and he's kind of lubed up a little bit and he's not looking and thinking and he says when he gets to that stage just kill him and he does that now the report comes back to King David that all of the king's sons have died that's where we're going to pick it up verse 28 Absalom commanded his servant saying see now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine and when I say to you strike Amnon then put him to death. Don't fear. I'm the commander. I myself am commanding you, be courageous, be valiant. Verse 30. Now it was while they were on their way, so the report's going back, that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Verse 32. Jonadab, the son of Shimeot, David's brother, responded. Remember, he's David's brother. Responded, do not let my Lord suppose that they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Wow. This is an insider 
He's the most dangerous person in the room. He knows exactly what's happened before the king knows what's happened. He knows what's happened even though bad reports are contrary. He's got inside information. The problem with this is he's got inside information without integrity. He's been the schemer all along. He's the guy who knows how to get the goodies without being good. He schemes without sanctification. There are people like that all around. Those are not your go-to people. That's what I mean by reliability. Those are not the people to rely on. People who can get you things. I can get you the goodies. I don't need somebody to get me the goodies without being good. Without being sanctified. That's called scheming. And a lot of times, we just want what we want. And we forget the standard and law. This man, Jonadab, had no respect for his cousin? I'll let you rape her. Had no respect for his uncle, King David? I'll let this happen in his family. Those are not reliable folks who just get you what you want without living, walking, thinking, consistent with God's Word. Uh, they're stumbling blocks, they're schemers. We need to not rely on those kind of folks. Repugnancy, reason, reliability. Number four, righteousness. When David hears all of this, he hears that he's been taken advantage of. He hears that his family's been abused. What's David's response? The only kind of response we get here. Verse 21. Now when da King David heard all these matters, he was angry. Very angry. Good. He ought to be. The problem is, it's not righteous anger. It's a frustrated anger. He's mad. He's upset. But he doesn't do anything. He's the king. He's the judge. He doesn't condemn Amnon. He doesn't exonerate Tamar. He doesn't lock away Jonadab. He doesn't do anything. He just gets mad. He just gets angry. Yet he has power and authority to do it all. That's living without righteousness. When integrity is lost, it's difficult to bring justice. How does King David condemn Amnon for rape when David is a rapist? How does he condemn Absalom for murder when David's a murderer? How does he condemn Jonadab for lying and deceiving and scheming when David is a liar and deceiver and schemer? And how is it that we can condemn those around us? We're living in a, a, a land that no longer has righteousness in high places. I mean, did we not all grieve in the past election? It didn't matter which candidate you, you chose. 
They both have a long lifestyle of sexual corruption and immorality and lying and deception. And it's like, neither one's going to fix this. Because how can they bring justice when it's not in their own lives? And we've got to, we've got to really, I'm not just throwing out illustrations when I talk about your gaming devices and your televisions and your computer screens. That, that's not an illustration. That's a reality. If you don't deal with that, you can't fix the world. You can't fix the community. How can you fix sexual corruption in your workplace, in the church, in the community, if it's right there in front of your face every day and you lust after it? Whether it's pornography, whether it's an illustration of that through the games or what else, until we get repugnant, until we get back to the law of God and get reasonable again, until we start relying on holy, righteous, sanctified men and women. Until we repent of our sins, our hearts. It's amazing to me the number of dads and moms that say, I need help with my kids. And the dads and moms are addicted to sexual corruption on their own screens. And you think you can fix someone else when the sin starts with us. Look at, i just give you one passage. Look at Titus chapter 3. To see the, the sin in our own hearts. This is a great summary. Titus chapter 3, 1 through 6. Remind them, it says, Titus 3, 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed. First, stop right there. What did Absalom do? He took matters into his own hands. Later, Joab takes matters into his own hands. He, if there's not going to be justice in the land, we need to be vigilantes. I'll just pick it up. I'll do it. I'll take care of the rapists. I got a gun. I'll fix this. Titus 3, 1 says, no, 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 remind them that's, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to fix it by being a vigilante. Be subject to rulers, to authorities. The government has to be trusted to kill the offenders, not us. God has raised up the authorities for that. So you report the cases to the authorities. You let the authorities deal with that. Now, he says, we need to be ready for every good deed. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to be showing every consideration for all men. When's the last time you've included in your prayers a prayer for your enemies, a prayer for your, the people who've offended you, a prayer for the people who have hit you on the cheek? We need to be ready to go there. Verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, 
and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. What a great text. None of us are saved because we were better than anybody else. We've all committed sin worthy of damnation. I don't want anybody to leave here this morning mad saying, I'm not good enough for that place. I don't want bad people to leave. I want us all to turn from our sin and run for mercy. Run for mercy. Don't wait for judgment. That would be foolish. Let's all run to Christ. Perhaps revival could start with us. Perhaps this whole land could turn back to God. But we have to start with this list. We've got to start hating sin. Before we're going to turn back and run to God. So don't leave. Run for mercy. Ask God for the cleansing we need, for the reasonable lives we need to live, for the righteousness which is only found in Christ. Yearn for it, pray for it. My fifth one was rule. It's just interesting. All through chapter 13, the abused woman is ignored and justice never restores her. Why? There's a lack of godly rule. Without godly rule, that's not going to happen. And it's not happening in our land because of that lack of godly rule. And many times it's not happening in our homes because we don't sometimes have moms and dads who are ruling over their children and ruling as to what is watched and what is seen and how we're educated and all of those things. Without that rule, godliness doesn't exist. It's just played with. We need to get back to God's word, his rule, so people can be restored to righteousness and not ignored and treated like trash or indifference. Well, don't miss the fact, 2 Samuel 13, for that matter, 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 11. Do you notice the people in the story are just like us? Did you catch the description of Amnon and the description of Tamar? She says she was beautiful. And Absalom, the most handsome, comes up later, so handsome. This is It's like you folks. When I look out there, I say, man, you look good. It's good-looking, upstanding folks in this story. We would call everybody in this story good Christian folks. They all go to the same church. They're all part of the most upstanding family in the land. They're the good guys. It's happening in the church. It's not all out there. All of this corruption was with those folks. And we are those folks. 
God help us. Let's pray. Father, let us run to Christ. Let's remember the, the verse Michael read earlier, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I am one. Father, we are all sinners in great need of grace. May we be a repenting people, turning from our sin day after day, week after week, year after year, running for the mercy and grace that's only found in Christ. Father, free us from this culture of sexual abuse by creating here a culture of sexual righteousness, a place where people respect